Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Now, today's podcast features an analysis of the seventh episode of the season entitled Light and Shadows. We'll then provide short takes on some observations we had while watching this show. And finally, we'll close out this episode with a report on other Star Trek-related news. Before we begin the synopsis, we want to remind listeners our reviews contain a number of spoilers. So, you might want to go and watch the episode if you haven't already done so. All right, so let's go ahead and go with the synopsis. Like many serialized shows, this episode features an ABC plot structure. The primary plot focuses on Michael Burnham's quest to locate her brother Spock. Michael asks and receives permission to take leave to go to Vulcan for clues to her brother's whereabouts. Returning to her home, she confronts her foster mother, Amanda, who, at first, feigns ignorance about her son's location. However, Burnham persuades her mother to take her to Spock, who has been hiding in the family crypt. Michael is alarmed when she sees just how severe her brother's condition is. Spock is in a highly psychologically regressive state, reciting the first doctrines of logic. Protective of her son, Amanda ignores her daughter's pleas to get medical attention for Spock. Sark eventually finds his family members in the crypts and insists on allowing Michael to take Spock to Section 31 for treatment. Initially, Amanda delivers a passionate argument for holding her son on Vulcan. However, she finally acquiesces when Sark convinces her that not turning over Spock to the authorities would ultimately damage both Spock's mental health and Michael's Starfleet career. On the Section 31 starship, Burnham entrusts the care of Spock to the supervision of Section 31 Director Leland. He tells her they will first apply a device to repair his neural impulses. However, Giorgio later refutes Leland's claims and informs Michael that the device is a memory extractor that will irreparably destroy his brain. Giorgio then helps Michael stage a ruse so brother and sister may escape the ship. After successfully eluding capture, Michael learns the numbers her brother mumbles are actually coordinates to the planet Talos IV. She then sets a course for the planet in hopes it will help to solve the mystery plaguing Spock. In the B-plot, the Discovery is charged with remaining near Kaminar to investigate residual decay of powerful tachyon particles left by one of the red signals. When a time-space rift opens up near the coordinates under study, Pike decides to take it's safer to take a, a, and launch a probe from a shuttle. Although a dangerous mission, Pike assigns himself to the task, and Tyler accompanies him to learn firsthand what the analysis may reveal. After launching the probe, the shuttle begins to experience 
temporal disturbances and finds itself drawn into a temporal rift, prohibiting the discovery from tracking their location. Despite Tyler's protests that they should save fuel, Pike orders him to carry out a procedure taught in flight school where you would burn the shuttle's plasma to alert rescuers of your location. The trick works, and Stamets, who is immune to temporal disturbances due to his tardigrade DNA, is called upon to find a way to get to the shuttle and pilot it back to normal space. Meanwhile, the probe Pike and Tyler had launched returns, but has been technologically altered with long menacing tentacles and compromised of metal alloys dating from 500 years into the future. As tentacles break through the top of the shuttle and attempt to kill Pike and Tyler, the two men are able to put down the threat by severing one of the tentacles. However, that severed piece attaches itself to the shuttle's control panel and begins a rapid data breach. The connection also affects Discovery's data systems, which likewise experiences a simultaneous data break downloading of information and possibly modifying Lieutenant Commander Arium. Stamets beams aboard the shuttle and pilots it out of the temporal rift. Pike sets the shuttle systems on automatic destruct just before the three are beamed back to safety aboard the Discovery. Pike and Tyler make amends, and all seems to be well. However, um, as we stated, unbeknownst to the rest of the crew, the data download did have an effect on Arium, although we are not sure yet how that effect will manifest itself. Right, those those three red dots that keep flashing in her eyes. Right. Now let's get into some analysis. The episode is written by veteran writer and producer Ted Sullivan from a story he co-wrote with Vaughn Wilmot. Sullivan previously had written three other Discovery episodes, Lethe and What's Past is Prologue from season one, and in this season he wrote the premiere episode, Brother. Overall, Adele felt that the script was a bit uneven, but Whereas I find there are some conveniences in the storyline that you have to go along with to get along, um, I don't think that the script is flawed necessarily. I just think that they expect some things from us to keep the story plot going. But we are both commending the African-American director, Martyr Cunningham, who brought a deft ham to this episode for both the emotional and action sequences. Uh, by the way, Gary, I don't know if you knew this, but the director happens to be the wife of James Fran, uh, who plays Sarek on the show. I had found that out. Thank you. <laughs> Without a doubt, we felt the scenes depicting the Sarek family drama were the highlights of this episode. Yeah, they were. However, the scriptwriter provided the agency, or I should say here, the scriptwriter provided agency for Amanda to flesh out her character. Portrayed by Canadian actress Mia Kirshner, she has little resemblance to the smiling, superficial depiction of Amanda as played by Jane Wyatt in the original series. The Discovery series, Amanda, is highly intelligent and fiercely protective of her son, 
who she feels she betrayed by allowing him to be raised according to Vulcan traditions to the detriment of the emotional development of his human side. Amanda declares her love for Sarek, but questions whether he would have given up his life and culture, as she did if she had asked him for a comparable concession to go live in Earth as where and how they chose to live their lives. We learn she used the novel Alice Through the Looking Glass to provide both Michael and Spock with a coping mechanism to use its lessons during their formative years on Vulcan. Amanda also saw the novel as a guide for Spock to deal with a learning disability he had that is similar to dyslexia. In one particular gripping scene, Sarek chides Amanda for harboring a criminal, I mean, he's talking about Spock, which he calls an abuse of his authority as the Vulcan ambassador. Amanda, Amanda answers, I don't live under your authority. And then she, you know, slowly puts her hand up on his neck. I'm your wife. I'm your partner. Try again, husband. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I, I, that's a, that is a very difficult emotional scene to oh, play. Yeah. And it's one that you would not have expected from the version of Amanda we were introduced to in Journey to Babel. Right, in right. the original series. Right, right, yeah. right. But I think it's one that's very logical, in, and it makes sense in the course of this relationship that they've been building in this show. Oh, yeah. Now, in the background, while all this is going on, there's a Michael, there is Michael feeling helpless, as she, it seems as if her family is unraveling before <laughs> her eyes. The tension continues to build against the backdrop of the continually babbling Spock, who goes between quotes from Alice through the looking glass to recitations of the Vulcan first doctrines of logic to numbers that initially appear to have no meaning. The scene comes to a climax as Sarek comes close to breaking. In a recent interview for, for the Facebook Live series, The Ready Room, James Frayne explained that Sarek is a man who plays by the book. He could not conceive of defying the law even when dealing with the well-being of his own son. He loves his family but puts his faith in the but puts his faith in the justice system. He says Spock will not go to jail if he is innocent. Sarek then tells Michael to turn her brother over to Section 31 so she will not have to face the consequences of defying authority. Excuse me. One of the other things I really liked about that interview, although it wasn't a perfect with James Frain, is how he talked about being in actually doing research or studying Mark Leonard's performance as Sark as well, mm -hmm. which I think is, was really helpful to him in regards to getting the consistencies between the characters. Mm, definitely. Now let's talk about Michael and Spock. Although they have been estranged for many years, Michael is distressed to see her brother in such psychological turmoil. After learning he suffers from dyslexia, Michael voices how lonely and painful it must have been for him to deal with such a condition rarely experienced by full-blooded Vulcans. 
Later in the episode, when asked to describe Spock to Leland, Michael calls him brilliant, curious. When he was little, he had fewer filters. After Giorgio informs Michael the device Section 31 planned to use on Spock would cause brain damage, Michael does not take much convincing before she follows her advice to spirit Spock off the ship. With no thought given to how the abduction may affect her career, she seems to be willing to go wherever necessary to alleviate Spock's psychological distress. So now, Gary, let's talk about, I'm going to call this section, uh, plot points that make you go, mmm. Okay. Uh, now, although we enjoyed the Sarek family drama scenes, we still felt the script had a few... Issues that you want to call conveniences. Okay, so we'll briefly mention a few of those concerns. Like for what? For one, Pike and Tyler. Um, we don't have an issue with the fact that Pike and Tyler seem to put an end to their combative relationship. In fact, I think that was actually a good aspect of the show because there are some people who just don't like Tyler. Right, right. And I think it was helpful having a surrogate in the show right. who could manifest that and make it make sense. He should be, Pike should be distrustful of Tyler. Mm-hmm. But the experiencing a life and death situation in close quarters in that shuttle led to that outcome um, for, would, would lead to that outcome for anyone, mm-hmm. basically. However, one of their issues stemmed from Tyler's accusation that Pike has assigned himself to dangerous missions out of guilt and a need to prove his bravery since the Enterprise crew were ordered not to get involved with the Klingon Federation War. So looking at the series, you know, uh, that chronologically preceded and followed the discovery on both the Enterprise and the Next Generation series, it was usual practice for the captain to serve as a member of the away team and place himself in dangerous situations. Therefore, it should not have been seen as such a novelty for Pike to do so. Well, and it's more so than that. I mean, it's the, the, those two shows, the lead actor is actually the captain. Right. And so, in a lot of ways putting the captain in danger was actually putting the captain in a dramatic situation as far as the storyline is concerned. That's right. So looking um, looking at Pike's confession to Tyler on the bridge occurring so quickly after they were saved seems to be hastily conceded. And then I, I do have to admit to that. That would have been a scene I would have preferred to happen in his, his quarters or in a private meeting right. somewhere. Not on the bridge. Not on the bridge. Where they where they had to assume that lowering their voices, nobody else would hear them. Right. That should have been a private moment, either in the the um, mess hall or somewhere else, where they would have been the only people. Mm-hmm. Um, it couldn't such a concession have been saved? Oh, even for ne- next episode, after Pike had had more time to reflect on the conclusions. Because I think he's a man who actually thinks through situations That's before right. he come, he may make those kind of statements. And there's even another uh, thing I want to talk about uh, concerning Pike. Which is what? Well, the series had spent the first half of this season's episodes building the case that Pike believed the Red Angel to be, you know, benevolent. 
However, after his harrowing experience dealing with the altered probe uh, with the future tech, Pike seemed too quick to side with Tyler that the Red Angel may possibly have undesirable intentions. This change seemed out of character with the man as presented in previous episodes. Right, I, I agree with you on that. I think that that was a bit too swift. He, it's, it's as if, you know, he says, okay, so since the Red Angel came from the left and then this this menacing probe came from the left, then they must both be evil because right. it came from the left. Right. And it just and it, and and there's really no other reason for him to assume that right. when you look at the actions of the Red Angel have always been in the in the direction of saving people as opposed to harming them. Right, right. Definitely in the best interest of you know the people of the Federation. Right. Right. You know. mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about that amazing shuttle. <laughs> when one of the altered probe's tentacles breaks through the top of the Discovery shuttle, there does not appear to be any environmental issues as a result of the breach. I mean, oxygen doesn't seep out. They don't, no. you know, they got nothing to worry about. They're not even worried. They don't see, <laughs> no one even says anything about it. Wow. Yeah, the probe appears to quickly create a new top of the shuttle. Um, but they seemed there there would be some type of effect on life support with such type of a large breach. That's right. Also, the Section 31 ship is only four hours away from Starbase 23, where Spock is to be taken into custody <laughs> and given care. Yet, Leland suggests that Michael go ahead with her shuttle to the Starbase and get some rest before they arrive. You know, he says this because he says, well, you know, so, you know, people who aren't part of the agency aren't usually on the ship. And so he's saying, oh, you know, so, you know, you really shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And that's why you should go to the shuttle. But really, they're only four hours away. Was Leland really suggesting that Michael's shuttle would make it to the star base sooner than the technologically advanced Section 31 ship? No, he was saying, "Get the hell off my ship!" Right, that was so right. I can, so I can harm your brother. That's right. And I, you, I don't have to worry about you seeing it or saying anything. Right. About it. So I don't have any witnesses that aren't in in my charge. Right. That's what he was saying. <laughs> That's what he was saying. Right. Okay. All right. Also, Michael escapes with Spock to in an ordinary shuttle. Yet the technologically advanced Section Three ship, for some reason, can't use a tractor beam to bring it back or track it before it's able to hide in an asteroid field conveniently and then wait for the three Section 31 ships to beam to go away. That's right. And then, oh, I can get out now. I can turn everything back on. Right. I can come out of this, this asteroid. Right. And I can go where I'm going to go. And guess where I'm going? Right, right. That was... Really difficult to believe. It is. It is, but it's you know, there's the a lot. Of, there's the, a lot of. There's a lot of science fiction that has used that plot point in it for the convenience of getting away from the bad guys. The only way you could have dealt with that is she would have been able to had to have been able to sneak off of the ship, you know, without anybody thinking, oh. That's Michael taking Spock. But they had already seen that there had been a breach. 
you know, as far as, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Spock being taken. Mm-hmm. And so they should have figured, oh, yeah, that shuttle leaving was probably Michael and Spock. Yeah, somebody should have seen that. Right. I think, I think when you, excuse me, but I think that when you're watching Michael kick Giorgio's ass, <laughs> that maybe you think that maybe, look, I think they're probably going to try to escape. Right, and right. So, yeah, there's a whole host of things that you should have been doing to in lieu of that information being received by someone. I mean, look, it's a spy ship. Right. They're spies. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, they should be better than that. They should be better than that. I'm just saying. They should be better than that. Yeah. So, again, either that it should have been written so that it was more that they didn't know that she had taken Spock somehow or that they wanted her to escape, yeah, you know. But, but 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 neither one of those were really true. It was just that we're just supposed to believe that she got away, and they they couldn't find her. And the only thing that keeps Leland from getting upset is that Giorgio tells him, "Well, you know." Right. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Okay. She so, got a secret. So. So that gets us, uh, Gary is about to reveal one of our tidbits that we wanted to talk about in this episode. And that is that Giorgio refers to Leland as a puppet. She calls him a puppet. And brazenly informs him that she knows he is responsible for the death of Michael's parents. Hmm. So we wonder, does that mean... that the Vulcan extremists were not responsible for their deaths? Hmm. Can't wait to find out the story behind that accusation. Yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some interesting elements there. I mean, the, the we don't know what her parents were doing. What they were actually doing and there. And what was the yeah. purpose of that clean not, not clean Vulcan human outpost anyway. Right. So there's probably something behind that as right. well. So I think as all these things get fleshed out, we'll learn a little bit more. And there's got to be a reason why, specifically, Michael Burnham and her family were were more important than the average Starfleet personnel. That's right. Part. Also, the look. People of color will all recognized the look that Tyler gave Pike when the captain asked him on the shuttle, do you have any experience behind the stick? It was, you know, it's one of those situations where you're being asked an extremely obvious question. And do you have any knowledge of doing something <laughs> that should be part of your natural training? <laughs> and and you, you're kind of incredulous to the point of, well, yeah, white man, I I do I can do this. <laughs> I can do this. So he gives him a look, and then he just says, let me just take over. I got this. While he goes back and tries to figure out how he's going to deal with um, the events in the, back, in the back of the shuttle. Right. Also, we want to point out again that um, this, what happened to Arium. Um, and we don't really know. They haven't really explained exactly what area. But is. they gave us a lot of time to focus on it. Right, right. So now that she's been affected by an unknown future technology, does she eventually bond with the computer and become Zora, the technologically advanced personified computer we saw in the short trek Calypso, which is set 1,000 years into the future? Yeah, I, that that's a possibility. That's an interesting possibility. I think, though, 
if she was being reprogrammed or having a hidden program put into her since she's she appears to be a human technological hybrid um could it be that there was some there was some decisions being made or some kind of uh message being sent to her in regards to how she should behave in the event that she comes in contact with the red angel or a temporal another time rift that they have in the future right i mean those are the things i'm wondering about i mean is it more so than if she becomes zora is she being pre-programmed to behave in a certain way that's good that may be not in the interest of the discovery crew hmm so um with that let's move on to star trek news all right. The, as we have mentioned before, Ready Room had another episode this Friday, and um, well, <laughs> th- this time they had James Frayne, who plays Ambassador Spock, as the guest. And you know, Frayne is—he's somebody. He's worked in in the film and television for quite a while. He has some theater credits. You know, he's one of the part, one of the members of the cast that actually resides in California. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't—it wasn't hard for him to get to the studio. And stand in front of a green screen or sit in front of a green screen and mm-hmm. talk to Naomi Kyle. But, you know, after this is now the seventh episode of the show. Well, actually the sixth because the first one was the red carpet. The first. Oh, that's right. It wasn't right, her. Right. It was. So. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. Okay. So this is the sixth that she has right. done. And, you know, I think we just need to come to the conclusion that she's just not a very good interviewer. No. She, I'm, I, I would assume that she's probably a nice woman, yes. young woman. Right. She'd probably be a great neighbor. Right. If you were going to leave for the weekend uh-huh. and you had uh-huh. cats or dogs that you wanted to leave with somebody, I would probably knock on her door and ask her to take care of my pets. Over the weekend, wow. or, or wire my, water my plants, but I do not think that she is a very good interview. She should not be doing this. I know, right. I know she's done some stuff like this in other for other mediums, but um, she's she. It's like she doesn't even listen. No, no. I mean, I think that's one of the problems is that she doesn't seem like she listens to the answer so she could do any kind of follow-up she just you know says her question and the answer comes and then she just moves on and it could be something totally different than what you know i mean there's really no discussion right you know she just asks a question the person reacts and then she moves on it seems as if if you look it seems as if she has a handful of cards. Right. So there's some somebody is writing questions for her, and it appears to me that what she does is she tries to memorize those questions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then find a way of fitting them into the conversation. Right. Without ever having any kind of awareness. Right. Of how what's being said. Right. Can influence the conversation instead. So if, if for example. James Frey, you know, talking about his wife or talking about how he he's he's talked about this researching, looking at episodes where Mark Leonard was playing Sarek. That's right. To to learn how he should respond in uh, in part of that scene when when it got really difficult between him and Amanda. Right. That to me sounds as if there was something else there that I that personally I would have preferred to dig into, to find mm-hmm. out what he was, you know, what was he looking for in Leonard? Because, you know, th- th- to be honest with you, 
I, I'm not saying anything out of school, but a lot of the actors that worked on Star Trek in the 60s, these were, these were actors who, for the most part, may not have had an, a film career. And if they did, they played small roles, specifically like DeForest Kelly. DeForest Kelly was in a lot of B movies. He a lot of B movies. A lot of B movies. He, he, was, he was always a villain yeah. in Westerns. And when you finally see him in stuff, you'll see that what I'm talking about. So these were so so although the cast we respect and and really like with the works look even Nimoy was doing B movie Nimoy did movie serials right. when he first started acting that's right so I mean although we respect these actors for the craft for the for what they brought to these characters that we fell in love with the the cast wasn't filled with A list actors right all right so I mean like I said Je- Jeffrey Hunter was a far better, you know, better established actor than anybody that was on the show for the three seasons. Right. So the fact that Jeffrey, I mean, James Frain is actually researching Mark Leonard, who, again, was a, you know, he's just a... He's a working actor. He's a meat and potatoes actor, right? Right. That tells you something about how much he respects the work that was done. Right. And I think that that was something that that we could have explored. Right. In, in much greater detail. In much greater detail. So, you know, yeah. you know, and the other thing I think about her her as an interviewer is that it seems as if I wonder whether she has even watched the episodes preceding talking to the actor. I think she has. She does. Now, I'm going to give her that. I think she seems, you know, she says she's a fan. I, I believe that she's a fan. She just doesn't know how to translate, you know, that experience to... Her job as an interviewer, you know, so, um, you know, this was a nice try, but I think that after this season, you know, they should really look to get somebody else. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, obviously they want somebody who is upbeat, which is the reason why they had um, Mike Mara last season right. with um, After Treks. He's a comedian. He knows how to tell jokes. Right. He knows how to keep things rolling. Right. Um, and now this time they obviously wanted to go on the cheap, right? Because they got somebody who had just was just basically doing video um, stuff, reading teleprompters on on a on a internet online magazine, right? So anyway, yeah. Well, enough about Naomi yeah, Kyle. I don't want to be. I have been. Well, we the have. Girl. We have. So yeah, she just needs to stop. Yeah, it's just stop. Stop. <laughs> All right. So next up is episode eight in Innocent. It is entitled "If Memory Serves." So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward. So in the next episode, Michael takes Spock to Talos Four, which was first visited by Pike, Spock, Number One, and a few other Enterprise crew members three years before the events of this episode. There, Michael hopes to find some assistance to help Spock get control of his mental faculties. And if you remember, Talos Four is the planet that is highlighted in, in the, the two-part episode, Menagerie, and which was originally the, the first unaired pilot, The Cage, for Star Trek. Right. And in addition, the episode trailer reveals that back on the Discovery, Dr. Hugh Colbert does not take well to the sight of Ash Tyler. 
the good doctor gets into a physical fight with the man who once snapped his neck. Yeah, I think that when you see the guy who killed you, <laughs> chances are you're going to be pissed. Right. I'm right. just I'm, I'm just spitballing here. Right. But I think that that's exactly the kind of response you have. Yeah. So so looking forward to it's like everybody want to kick Ash Tyler's ass. I'm just wondering. I mean, this year he like got no love. No love at all. Well, you know, I ain't mad about that though. Uh, I'm not really mad about that. Okay. So until next time, we want you to like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, Facebook, facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD, at our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where you, we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of the show. Also, Email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.